Let's get this trading week started live from New York City this morning. Good morning, good morning. Equities up a quarter of 1% on the S&P. The countdown to the open starts right now. Everything you need to get set for the start of U.S. trading. This is Bloomberg The Open with Jonathan Farrow. Live from New York, we begin with the big issue. After a decade of excess, here come the cuts. There has been this disconnect. Despite major headline news about layoffs, that has not translated into a broad-based weakening of the labor market. There's clear divergence going on. First, we see stage one, where businesses begin to freeze hiring. We are uh, looking at job, uh, you know, the layoff announcements, they're picking up. Stage two, we start to see sizable layoffs. We're going to see these layoffs that we were just witnessing show up. Then we start to see that filter in to the broader data. We just don't see that happening right now. It's coming from sectors like financial services and tech. You talk about tech sector layoffs. Yes, there is some softening in the labor market. It's inevitable that we see some of those job cuts. But it isn't in the sectors that the Fed is really worried about. Let's start the discussion. JP Morgan, Stephanie Roth joins us now. Aberdeen's James Athey alongside us. Stephanie, first to you. What can we learn about the adjustment process that big tech is going through right now? Yeah, this is probably the first sign of, of the slowdown that we're going to see in the labor market. Tech companies overhired in, in the bulk of the pandemic, and it's not surprising that that's the first area that we're seeing weakness. Now, the, the jobs picture last week was a bit mixed, but we do expect that what we saw from the unemployment rate to be a signal of, of what's to come. It, it, unemployment should, should start to rise, uh, and it might take a couple more months before we really see the, the cracks in the labor market, but that should, that should come. What, what the Fed has done is enough, and we do think that that should result in a material slowdown. We'll probably see more layoffs uh, spread throughout the economy, but it might take a little bit more time. Stephanie, as things stand, though, what we see is in a narrow part of the economy, it's in tech. You see it in the likes of Lyft, you see it in Twitter, you see it in the chip makers, Qualcomm making cuts, Intel spending cuts, layoffs, etc. Do you see this early signs, then, of a broader breakdown in the labour market, or is it still too early to tell? Well, but we do think that we'll see, we'll see that play out in the rest of the economy. It's just a little bit early. This is a bit siloed at the moment. But we should start to see a slowdown in, 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 in 
job gains, and that should ultimately result in, in job cuts. But we think it's still early. We'll probably see that in, around the second quarter of next year. Uh, we're expecting a recession to hit in mid-2023, and that, that's a clear indication of that. James Athey, your take on this conversation, and welcome to the show, mate, as always. Hi, John. Yeah, yeah I mean, I agree. I think what we're seeing is uh, exactly as has just been described, big tech over overhired essentially these these businesses extrapolated their blitz scale growth far into the future when most of them really didn't have any right to do so. They're, these businesses are more cyclical than had been assumed. And in a lot of cases, they've never really been profitable. They don't have IP, which necessarily protects their position. So they're open to competition. And, and yet investor cash have been thrown at them with abandon. You know, when I see a company like DocuSign with seven and a half thousand employees, I really do scratch my head and wonder what they're all doing uh, for what is relatively simple, straightforward business. Um, and, and I think we're seeing the sort of tail end of the pandemic effect, right? We had a huge amount of goods consumption relative to services because we were all locked up at home shopping on, uh, you know, on Internet retailers. And then as the economies have opened up, we've seen this long tail of a, a switch back into services consumption. It's gone on longer than I expected. Um, but this is a services economy. Service business is, is low productivity and it's it's. Um, you know, extremely heavy on labour. So it's no surprise that the labour market has remained strong while service consumption is, is as healthy as it is. But the, the shock to incomes, the shock to the economy from this tightening of monetary policy hasn't yet played out. And when it does, I'm sure we'll see joblessness. James, you mentioned the pandemic. Stephanie mentioned the pandemic. I'm trying to work out whether the excess that we're trying to unravel here is two years' worth or a decade's worth of excess. James, which one is it? It's <laughs> a good question, John. Yeah, it's both. Um, there has been excess in many areas for a long time, um, just because of you know this ultra easy monetary policy forever, the constant um, provision of liquidity by central banks into markets, which has caused this misallocation of capital. It's caused far too much, uh, far too big a percentage of the GDP pie to go to owners of capital relative to labour. And, and that's a big problem that we need to resolve on a more secular basis. Uh, but on a cyclical basis, obviously, when you print money in the size that many economies were, the US in particular, and just start handing out checks to people, then that creates a different kind of excess. So I think the answer is both. Stephanie, do you view it as both? Yeah, totally agree there. Uh, a combination of a you know a decade worth of, of excess hiring in the space, and we think that the the next decade might look a little bit different from that perspective. But we're also seeing a, a sort of cyclical near term over hiring in, in some of these areas, and we're just working off some of that froth. James, now the next area within. Yes, yeah, Stephanie, carry on, please. Sure. The next area within the economy is is going to be the services sector. Right now, that's that's incredibly firm, but at some point, the excess cash is going to start ro rolling over. The impact from higher rates is just going to feed through the economy and the services sector is, is likely next. James, if you two both agree that this could be a decade's worth of excess, James, I wonder what this means for the future of this benchmark in the United States on the S&P. I had this conversation with Michael Schaul of Marketfield a little bit earlier this morning and he made the point that he thinks if you bought the top in the equity market just in the last 12 months that you're going to have several years' worth of remorse that we could face a decade, a lost decade, for big tech. And because of the waiting on the S&P, perhaps big challenges in our future for holding the index, the market cap weighted S&P 500. 
Yeah, I mean, again, I think similar to, to the end of the 90s and the early noughties, it's not to say that there weren't brilliant businesses in there. It wasn't to say that there, there wasn't an ongoing technical uh, technological revolution and that that would be hugely successful for, for the winners. It's just the way in which that that was blindly applied across the piece to all manner of companies which were assumed to be world leaders and world dominant long before they were. And indeed, they were assumed to have a potential marketplace which was global in nature. And actually, a lot of them, it was much more niche and it probably wasn't anywhere near as big as was being suggested. And therefore, there's a lot of froth to come out. And as you've described, these are market cap weighted indices. So the performance of those companies led them to be dominant in terms of their uh, size within the index. I think when you look at the size of energy, the outperformance of the energy sector over the last two, three, four, five years now has been a leading sector in terms of performance, but it's still only, what, 5%, something around there of the S&P, whereas tech's still above 20. That sort of um, transition, if you like, back to the old economy in some respects versus some of these tech companies, which I don't think really are the sort of world-changing businesses that some have assumed, that's unlikely to happen quickly. I think that's a much slower burn. So, Stephanie, what do you say to a generation of investors who have been told stay along the index by the market cap-weighted S&P 500 over a decent enough time horizon, let's say five years, it will deliver? What's the challenge to that view now? I still think that that's the right view. Holding the index, and especially with the U.S. compared to the rest of the world, we still think that it could outperform. We also just have to, to level set a little bit. We might not experience the returns that we saw over the last decade, but we still think that that returns should be decent. So maybe think about growth or growth returns looking more like some of the rest of the index um, rather than the index performing terribly over the next couple of years. Futures right now up a third of 1% on the S&P on the Nasdaq, up a third of 1% also. Talking about the big cuts we're seeing in big tech, seeing it in Meta as well. Meta planning to begin large-scale layoffs this week. That's expected to affect many thousands of employees. An announcement planned to come as soon as Wednesday, according to the Wall Street Journal this morning. Mike McKee has a different story. Morning, Mike. Morning, John. Well, Stephanie was right. This is kind of siloed within tech, but it's also siloed within the silo because it's really tech firms that have earnings or financial issues right now that are laying people off. It doesn't show up in the broader economy. You take a look at the layoff rate, according to the JOLTS figures, and it's under 1%. And obviously, jobless claims haven't been rising at all. So at this point, right now, the rest of the economy gets up every morning and goes to work. And also, we're hearing anecdotal reports that a lot of startups out in Silicon Valley are licking their chops because a lot of talented people are going to be available in the tech space. Is it going to happen? Well, uh, we don't know yet. This is a kind of a different situation than previous recessions. And yes, there are recession calls out there. But look at this survey from the conference board of CEOs. Going into the fourth quarter, 81% said business conditions had worsened. And 85% said they expect a recession next year. But 44% are still expanding their labor force and 86% say their capital budgets are going to remain the same or increase. Companies don't see a really bad time ahead. So it all brings us to, and I know you're looking forward to this on Thursday, John, the CPI report, to what happens with inflation and how strict the Fed has to be for how long. The New York Fed has an 
underlying inflation gauge that tells us more about perhaps where turning points are than actual uh, the actual inflation rate and it peaked in march and has been coming down since you look at the two isms for both services and especially manufacturing and they peaked at about the same time and they have been coming down a lot of people think that we might see inflation fall faster than wall street is anticipating i'm not making any predictions but if it did then we would see the Fed react more quickly. And this could be a whole different kind of recession and recovery that we've seen before, a lot of it pandemic-related. I'll get someone else to answer that question. Mike McKee, thank you. And so that's someone else. Stephanie, that's you. Can inflation fall as quickly as it rose? Is it stickier on the way down? There might be some elements of, of it being sticky. We certainly have seen that this year. There, you know, shelter inflation has been a big contributor to, to, to core inflation. And now Wall Street has come to the conclusion that shelter is likely to, to, to start cooling down, but it might take until the beginning of next year. If you look at real-time measures of rent inflation, they've actually contracted on the month. So there are elements with inflation that are a bit lagging. Uh, and certainly we're starting to see the disinflation within goods. Services inflation should start cooling in the first half of next year, in part because we expect the material slowdown and growth. Look how quickly things have flipped in one particular segment. Look at the chip makers. James Athey, look at Qualcomm. Look at Intel. We've gone from a situation where they couldn't produce enough of the stuff to now the cuts. The cuts on spending, the cuts on hiring, the cuts on the workforce that's already at the companies. James, that's happened quickly. Can the rest of the economy go the same way? I mean, yeah, essentially it can, John. I mean, but obviously inflation is a, is a rate of change. And so you, you need constant forces driving it, um, driving it higher in order to maintain those sort of large increases. So when it comes to the inflation picture, broadly speaking, higher prices in the past tend to mean uh, sort of lower inflation in the future. That has been the pattern. I think energy commodities are possibly a fly in the ointment there. But in terms of cyclical activity, I think there are plenty of signs out there, not just in the US, but everywhere, that, that tomorrow is going to be worse than today. And we really are in fairly early stages of this. And, and as we discovered during the pandemic, right, chips are in everything. So if people are just buying a few less washing machines, if people are just buying a few less cars, all of these things are depressing demand for chips. And because of the lags involved in, in production and supply chains and what have you, it's almost inevitably the case that, that production capacity is increased at the worst possible time. Um, and so you then end up with this inventory overhang, you end up with this supply overhang, and that tends to depress prices even further. We're seeing that, obviously, in, in goods inventories in the U.S., but I do think that will be part of the story again in 2023. James Athey, sticking with us alongside Stephanie Roth to the two of you. Thank you. Equity futures positive this morning across the board. Coming up, it's the home stretch. President Biden's final push ahead of the midterms. One of the most important elections in our lifetime. It's going to shape... The outcome's going to shape our country for decades to come. And the power to shape that outcome is in your hands. 24 hours to go. That conversation up next. important elections in our lifetime. You have to get out. You have to vote. 
or we're going to have a problem. Our economy continues to grow and add jobs, even as gas prices continue to come down. Our country has never been so bad as it is right now. He's doing stuff right now. Solving problems right now with a Democratic Congress. And he can continue it if you vote. You're going to elect the incredible slate of true America first Republicans up and down the ballot. This election requires every single one of us to do our part. It's that important. A busy weekend of campaigning and a busy weekend of clarifications. President Biden sparking criticism from within his own party. It's also now cheaper to generate electricity from wind and solar than it is from coal and oil. We can accommodate that transition. No one's building new coal plants because they can't rely on it. We're going to be shutting these plants down all across America and having wind and solar. Senator Manchin from Virginia slamming those remarks, writing the following. Comments like these are the reason the American people are losing trust in President Biden. Being cavalier about the loss of coal jobs is offensive disgusting. The White House walking those comments back. The press secretary saying the following. The president's remarks have been twisted to suggest a meaning that was not intended. He regrets if anyone hearing those remarks took offense. Joining us now down in D.C. is Anne-Marie. Morning, Anne-Marie. Good morning, John. What really an embarrassing moment for the Democratic Party ahead of a midterm election. They're having a spat within themselves about the future of energy, of course, um, in this statement where the president's remarks were walked back by his press secretary. They were saying that the comments they felt like were twisted, uh, pointing to, without naming him, Senator Manchin's remarks because the president was talking about what was economically and technologically changing in the energy space. At the same time, John, it also is an awkward moment for the fact that the whole world is dealing with really an energy crisis. We are not as far in the transition as many would have hoped or liked to see. And we see that this summer we saw that rising uh, gasoline prices. And um, unfortunately, we'll probably see that this summer, uh, this winter, excuse me, with home heating. And already there's an issue happening in the Northeast because we have incredibly low supplies of diesel to heat homes. And this is something that this administration is already grappling with. And Marie, the question I've got, and I think this is important for market participants as well, how long is it going to take to get the results from these midterms? Uh, well, as I told you in during surveillance, Jonathan, you and I could be talking about the composition of Congress uh, for the next four or five weeks because we may not know until December because Georgia may end up being a runoff election for the senator Herschel Walker versus uh, senator the current incumbent Warnock that could go into a runoff election and that may be the deciding factor of who whether or not it's the Democrats or the Republican have control of that chamber. Hey, Mitch, thank you. I'm Marie down in Washington. We'll be catching up a little bit later. I'll be heading down to DC with the team. Tom Keane and Lisa Bramitz for special coverage tomorrow and on to Wednesday as well. Stephanie Roth and James Athey back with us. Stephanie, the first question to you. How do you think this market will deal with a prolonged battle of runoff races, say a runoff race in Georgia? Four more weeks of this stuff. I think it might, might put, put, be a bit of a headwind on, on markets, but I think the more important thing is really going to be CPI. And I, I heard this morning on surveillance you were asking guests, you know, which is more important, the election or CPI? I would say the inflation outlook for the next couple of months is going to be much more important, especially when we're thinking about the Fed potentially causing recession in this U.S. economy. 
James, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely, I do. I, certainly, the, it seems unlikely that the House is going to be uh, in, in sort of embroiled in, in uncertainty for weeks and weeks and weeks. So if, if the Republicans win the House, then essentially the Democrat lock on Congress is over. And of course, it does make a difference at the margin whether the Democrats are in control of the Senate, but it doesn't become such a big issue then. So presuming, as, as we expect, the Republicans win the House and do so fairly handily, the fact that the Senate race drags on, I don't think is significant for markets particularly uh, you know I agree with Stephanie completely the CPI number has the potential to be a much more dramatic market market moving event from the market's perspective I get all this I understand that in the short term it's all about having some certainty over fiscal policy perhaps constraining the ability to deliver more fiscal stimulus and spending that would complicate the Fed's effort we've got all that Stephanie in the near term what I struggle with in the longer term Stephanie if we don't have the availability of a counter-cyclical fiscal buffer at a time when the economy is rolling over. Do you think we, re we revisit this and say maybe actually it's not that bullish having divided government? I think we have to assume that we're going to be having divided government, in which case the market is likely, you know, pricing that in to some extent. We're not expecting to have a, a big fiscal stimulus in, in, in the onset of recession next year. So it's likely all, hand, all hands are going to be on, on, on the Fed in order to, to stimulate policy, and, and they probably will, but it might take some time because they want to make sure that inflation is, is truly cooling. So we shouldn't really expect much from, from fiscal next year, and I, I don't think the market would was surprised by that. James, your response? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I one of the one of my biggest concerns, and this has been the case for, for quite some time, is just the extent to which we believe that each and every recession requires some dramatic policy response to offset it. Um, because, you know, th there's nobody sitting around any of the tables who's prepared to accept any short-term pain. Um, and in doing so, they're quite often sacrificing long-term stability um, and the long-term long health of the economy. I think one of the big issues is that things have become so imbalanced because there have been so many and so frequent efforts by policymakers to deal with any and every little downturn in the economy. The idea of, you know, Schumpeterian creative destruction has been completely eschewed. And in doing so, we have you know, however many zombie companies in the US which are sucking up capital and not using it productively, we have savings which is way too high because we have such a, a skewed sort of concentration of income and wealth amongst people and amongst corporations. Um, we have reduced competition across a number of sectors which permits that to happen, all of which is a headwind to potential growth, to structural growth rates and, and short-term spending actions from governments and easy monetary policy as far as the eye can see are not helping these problems, they're making them much worse. So it would be nice in, in my mind if we could get to, get to a place where governments were investing for the long term and monetary policy was far less activist. But I'm, I'm not, not sure holding that, my breath on that front. I'm not sure they're going to embrace your view of Austrian economics anytime soon either, James, but we can run with this just briefly. Stephanie, I hear a lot of people say short and shallow. Our audience hears that all the time. If there is no counter-cyclical buffer here, a counter-cyclical circuit breaker from monetary policy anytime soon, from fiscal, it's not going to have the ability. Doesn't that tell you something about duration of a potential downturn? Could this persist longer than people think? Sure. We think it, would, it could look more like a typical recession, a recession that lasts about four quarters, has an unemployment rate rising up to 6%. The, the argument that it's going to be specifically short, I think, is a difficult one. But where we would push against is a, a severe and deep recession. That we don't think will happen. So we don't expect anything like the great financial crisis. 
The economy is, is fairly healthy. There's not that much leverage in the system. But sure, it could look like a normal type of recession where you, you do get job losses and, and the unemployment rate does rise. It's been nothing normal about the last 20 years. Stephanie Roth, James Athey, to the both of you. Stephanie, thanks for joining the programme. James, to you as well. Futures right now are four-tenths of 1% on the S&P. Coming up the morning calls and later, the man himself, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, on why the bear market rally might be able to continue. That conversation coming up. The opening bell, just seven minutes away. Five minutes away from the opening bell, equity futures up a third of 1% on the S&P. Coming off the back of a week of losses on the Nasdaq, down by about 6% last week. Biggest weekly loss going all the way back to January of this year. Trying to bounce back again and build on Friday's gains. The Nasdaq 100 up four-tenths of 1%. That's the price action. Let's get you some morning calls. First up, Wells Fargo downgrading Costco to equal weight. 490 price target, highlighting a weakening consumer and potential currency headwinds. That stock is down by 1.6%. Next up, Berenberg downgrading Estee Lauder to hold 220 price targets, saying the company lacks visibility on a potential recovery. We're down by 1.6% there to 207. And finally, Barclays trimming its Apple price target at 144, seeing growing risk to Q1 estimates after cutting its outlook for iPhone shipments. We're down there by 1.3% at 136.50. Coming up, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson expecting the midterms to keep the bear market rally going. That conversation just around the corner with equity futures up a third of 1% on the S&P. This is Bloomberg. Four seconds away from the opening bell. Equity futures just about positive, up a third of 1% on the S&P as we kick off a new trading week. And I say the same thing every single Monday. Big week ahead. CPI coming up in the midterms. I would say it's a big week ahead on the Nasdaq right now. Up a half of 1%, kicking high on the Russell as well. The small caps of 6.10. There's your opening bell. Switch on the board and get to the bond market. Yields look like this on a 10-year. Unchanged on a 10-year at 4.15.45. In the FX market, Euro-Dollar. Had a sneak peek at life again above parity a little bit early this morning. Right now, back to 99.94. We're positive four tenths of 1%. Crude unchanged, 92.53. Still trying to get used to it again in the 90s. 92.55 now. Basically unchanged on the session. At the opening bell on the S&P, we're about 20 seconds into this. I'll bring up the scores on my terminal on the S&P. Up a third of 1%. Utilities kind of lagging at the moment. Communication services top of the pile, up about nine-tenths of 1%. Breaking things down for you is Katie Greifeld. Hey, John, well, let's start with Meta after that Wall Street Journal report over the weekend that the company plans to start cutting thousands of jobs this week. Shares are actually rising, though, and that's what's interesting. Maybe because the company is starting to get serious about cutting costs. This, of course, as it's still burning billions of dollars in the metaverse, but that's another story. Apple, too, we've got some news there. Uh, the company said that shipments of its newest premium iPhones will be lower than previously expected. The company said demand is still strong, but it's China lockdowns that affected operations at a supplier's factory. That means longer wait times ahead of this holiday 
holiday season. Shares only off uh, about half a percent or so. Outside of tech, well, let's talk about Disney because the stock is rallying ahead of tomorrow's earnings report. Disney expected to widen its streaming lead over Netflix. Shareholders seem excited. Shares are higher. JD.com also in the green. It's one of several Chinese internet ADRs higher this morning. The government there saying that COVID zero policies are still in place. That theoretically means more time spent online. You can see JD.com shares up over 3%. Back in the physical world, though, you have U.S. natural gas soaring this morning. That's as a winter storm hits the Pacific Northwest. That's boosting lights of Southwestern Energy and EQT, John. I've got complaints about Disney's Hulu, Katie. <laughs> have you seen the price increase? From uh, 75.99 to 82.99. My husband handles that, John. Does he? That's not your thing. I'm handling that right now. It's a problem. <laughs> Kelly, thank you. The S&P up four tenths of one percent. I'm not sure I've handled that at all. Taylor Riggs, onto the midterms. I was going to say you only like Hulu because the Kardashians are on it, John. But How did that, you know? How did you know? Because I know that you love Kendall Jenner and Kendall Jenner only. This but is let, true. <laughs> let's get to the midterms. And on a serious note, those opening bell that you talked about. Take a look. Historically, really interesting calls coming out this morning. On one hand, you Morgan Stanley saying yes, the traditional sort of correlations hold up in midterms. Equity to December looks pretty good. Evercore ISI though coming out and saying you know what, maybe not so fast. This year could prove to be different regardless. I know that we'll all be keeping our eyes on tomorrow and sort of the performance as we head into the end of the year. Take a look at sort of the probability. Hard to be a betting person, but when we take a look at the MAGA ETF relative to the Democratic ETF, in that terminal chart, you'll see that maybe the Republican ETF rises just a little bit relative to that and then predicted the odds of both a Republican House and a Senate. That is the blue line as well, elevated but off the highs of the session. So if you're a betting person, that's one way in which you can look at it. I think all in all, John, though, for the market, how we're thinking about this is how is equity performance heading into the end of the year in a mid-year year. And this is it. November actually looks pretty good. It looks really good in a midterm year, much better than either an election year or neither year. So that is the momentum heading into this month. I was a big fan of revenge bodies with Chloe as well, for the record. <laughs> no one believes this anyway, so it doesn't matter. Taylor, thank you. On the equity market, on the S&P, up a third of 1%. On the Nasdaq, up two-tenths also. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson expecting stocks to overcome another challenging week. He wrote the following this morning. The bear market rally was severely tested last week with the Fed's clear message that it's far from done. We think it survives again, with the midterms providing the catalyst for lower bond yields and higher equity prices. I'm pleased to say that Mike joins us right now. Mike, I want to start, if it's OK, of course, with last week's note, not the week over the weekend. When you said the Fed meeting is critical for the rally to continue pause or even end completely, Mike, when I watched that Fed meeting, I was kind of kneeling or kind of leaning into the end of that one, maybe it ending. Why can this continue? Yeah, thanks, John. Good to see you. I mean, look, I, uh, we got to be flexible here. And what I would say is that the message last week from the Fed was pretty mixed, right? The, the statement itself was dovish. You know, the market rallied off of that. And then the press conference was a bit more hawkish. And look, this is the ambiguity that we have now, right? People have to interpret uh, these statements and these reactions on their own. It's not going to be that exact anymore. The Fed doesn't exactly know how they're going to end this. And neither does any investor, including ourselves. What we do know is that we're getting closer to the end 
and the rate of change probably on the pace of hikes is coming down. And that's our forecast, 50 basis points in December, 25 in the January meeting, and then they pause from there. And that's a, you know, that's a quick ending. So that's enough for uh, the bond market to potentially rally at the back end, uh, particularly if we get the outcome in the elections that we expect uh, tomorrow. Let's get to the midterms in a moment. Do you consider the end of hiking the end of tightening? And it sounds like you do. So let me ask you this. Would you consider a Fed that pauses and stops hiking, but a recession that rolls over to be tightening or not? Well, it's all one and the same, right? So the Fed is likely going to achieve its goal. It already has in terms of slowing the economy. Uh, ultimately, I think they'll be successful in getting inflation down because it's not really about the Fed so much as it is about the excessive fiscal spending and, and of course, what that did to demand. And that is already fading because of demand destruction from prices and, of course, as people run out of money. So I think it's all one and the same. And, and look, the, the, the trickiest part here, John, you know, is that, you know, do we decide, you know, is there going to be a window of opportunity between the end of the Fed hiking cycle and the recession itself? You know, this summer we wrote about that. We said it's too early to think about the Fed ending its rate hike cycle, so we didn't try and play that rally. This time, though, we think there could be this little window of hope, particularly at the year end when there's pressure to perform and people have to chase uh, stocks in the year end potentially. And, and, and as Taylor was saying, you know, the the midterms historically are a positive catalyst, for at least for the month of November. Well, let's talk about where you want to be long within the equity market. The recent outperformance in the equal weight S&P over the last couple of weeks is clear for all to see. What's the signal you take from that, Mike? Well, look, I think that the, look, the equity market uh, leadership um, is fading, right? So technology has been a massive underperformer this year. Consumer discretionary as well. We've been underweight those groups. And the question, of course, is like, what's going to take over? And I think what's interesting, like what we're trying to do, John, as you know, we're, uh, you know, we look at the internals of the stock market to help guide us. And we're, we're getting close to the end of the bear market. We're not there yet. But, you know, what you want to, what you want to try and figure out is what outperforms in the last leg down, because that will tell you what's going to outperform in the next leg up eventually when we get there. And that's been industrials, financials, and some of the commodity complex. And that makes perfect sense to us, right? In the next uh, economic expansion next year, uh, we think that there will be a major leadership change uh, from the former leaders to this new areas. You think tech gets left behind? Well, look, I mean, the, the reality is, is that there are plenty of good tech stocks that will be fine. Um, the reality is that there's too many of them, right? And, and, there's, and they got overvalued. So it's not that technology is dead in terms of the spending trends. We're very bullish on technology spending. However, there's too many competitors now, and the valuations just got out of whack, so we got to take that out. And yeah, so there'll be a lag. There'll be a laggard probably in the next recovery cycle. But that doesn't mean there are great single stock opportunities within that. The midterms, let's go there. It was in your note this morning. Is that just a risk event, Mike, we need to clear? Or does it have outcomes that have consequences one way or the other? Yeah, no, I, I view the CPI as kind of this risk event that needs to just get it out of the way. It's sort of like, who cares? You know, it's backward looking data anyways, but we got to you know, we got to get through it, and then we're pretty confident that six months forward, inflation will be materially lower. That's our forecast. And so it's just, that's, that's kind of the risk event that just has to come and pass. The midterms, though, however, could have lasting implications if it's a decisive victory for the Republicans. Because, you know, as I said before, I, we think the majority of the inflation spike was a, a result of excessive fiscal spending. And that, of course, will be curtailed 
even if the Republicans just win one chamber. That's not to say that the you know the, the Republicans are fiscally conservative to a, you know incredibly fiscally conservative, but it does throw a wrench into this idea of a single party, which the market also likes. The idea that not have no one party having single control. So ultimately, it should be good for bonds. Bond yields lower has been key to our tactical rally call, as you know. And, and look, I want to make it perfectly clear, John. If we don't get you know rates to come down, the rally's over. You know, we had it 39, 39.50, uh, but you know we see enough in the tea leaves and enough in the technicals to suggest we should hang out and see these two events this week play out first. Mike, different views though, and you've written about this in the past, so I'd love your view on it now. Are rates going down because there is this increased perception that the cycle is ending, the hiking cycle is ending, or are rates going down because? Perceptions of global growth are rolling over. And in the near term, I get it, you trade on just the move. But when do you start to trade on the reasons for the move into next year? Yeah, look, we're, you know, so we, you know, we have to kind of serve many constituents. Um, this is a trading call, okay? Um, for our core, you know, kind of view, we, we remain of the view that the bear market is not over, primarily because of the view we've had all year, which is that earnings ultimately will decide the end of the bear market. And we think earnings expectations for next year are significantly too high, maybe as much as 20%. And that will happen over the next three to six months, meaning the numbers will finally come down. Part of the reason we threw in the towel on that happening now is because we just got a sense that companies wouldn't talk about 2023, which they did not, and therefore the earnings remain high for next year. But make, I want to make it clear, over the next three months, we think that will change. We think companies will discuss 2023, and the reality will set in that the numbers have to come down. That will form the bear market low probably sometime in the first quarter of next year. Are we seeing signs of that now with some of these tech companies, Mike, reporting cuts, hiring freezes or layoffs? Well, let's separate that because um, first of all, we saw many of these large tech companies report, you know, pretty weak third and fourth quarter. But then when you actually look what happened in 2023 numbers, they didn't come down that much, at least for the majority of them. And part of that's just, you know, kind of laziness of the numbers. Nobody talked about it, so they just kind of keep them there. But then I want to talk about the cost cutting, okay? So, I, look, this is the way, this is, the, this is what will get us bullish, by the way. If we saw more aggressive cost-cutting, not just by the tech companies, but by companies more broadly, this acknowledgement that we have a cost problem. And, you know, obviously we don't want to see people get fired, but, you know, layoffs, unfortunately, are a part of that slowdown. When that layoff cycle picks up in earnest, that will actually be one of the keys for us to get bullish because that means the bleeding will stop on the operating leverage. Final question. You hinted at the answer to it a little bit earlier in the interview. I've asked this question all morning, Mike. You get the choice, the outcome of CPI or the outcome of the midterms right now. I can give you one. What would it be? If I could see it right now, Clarence Beeks, um, I would say uh, I'd probably rather see the midterm election outcome because that has more lasting impact potentially. Mike Wilson, thank you, sir. As always, Mike Wilson there of Morgan Stanley, still looking for that bear market rally to continue through the next couple of months. Equity futures were positive going into the open. We come out the other side about 11, 12 minutes into the session with positive two-tenths of 1% in the cash equity market. On the NASDAQ, we're basically unchanged. Coming up, debate over China's reopening plans, reaching a fever pitch. 
I'm not quite sure what a pivot on COVID lockdowns quite means in China yet, but it's certainly not going to be a sudden reopening to, as we saw in the Western world. It's going to be more nuanced. And the latest on Apple's production difficulties. That conversation up next. This is Bloomberg Z Open. I'm Lisa Mateo, live in the principal room. Coming up, Microsoft President Brad Smith. That's at 10.45 in New York, 3.45 p.m. in London. This is Bloomberg. I'm not quite sure what a pivot on COVID lockdowns quite means in China yet, but it's certainly not going to be a sudden reopening to, as we saw in the Western world. It's going to be more nuanced. And as such, I'd be a little bit cautious about some of the optimism which is happening in Hong Kong. Economic headwinds piling up as China doubles down on its COVID zero policy. Health officials saying previous practices have proven that our prevention and control plans are completely correct. This is the demand slowdown worsens China's trade taking the hit with exports falling and imports shrinking for the first time since 2020. Mike McKee and Damien Sassar here with the latest. Mike, morning. Don't worry, John. Well, you can easily see what the problem is with China. They have been much more strict than the rest of the world. When you take a look at the stringency index, the uh, measure of how tight their policies are on locking down, the U.S. and I just picked Germany have fallen tremendously and we're pretty much reopened, whereas the Chinese, you can see, are still very, very tight. And that's having impacts across the board, not just on trade. You mentioned the exports and imports, but Chinese growth remains really slow. Their uh, trade deficit, uh, trade surplus rather widened because imports are so low at this point. 10% of China's GDP still under lockdown, according to Nomura. And there are rumors of a COVID zero policy change that, as you mentioned, are being shot down by the government. So nobody quite knows what's coming out of China, except that some companies like Apple <laughs> having problems. There was a massive frenzy last week, Damien Sasser, in the market off the back of these hopes. What's the truth to all of this, Damien? Well, first of all, I don't know what the big surprise was. I mean, it was obvious that exports were going to get a hit here. I mean, look at South Korea. Exports declined for the first time in two years. Look at freight rates between Shanghai and Los Angeles. They're down 80 percent over the last year, Jonathan. So things were boiling to a head. But to your point about the equity market per action last week, look, what it says is you've got very, very light positioning from foreigners in China. And so it doesn't take a whole hell of a lot to move the needle. And that's exactly what we saw. Look, I mean, I'm not saying suggesting that there's real value in China right now, given the geopolitical and legal overhang and the property sector, of course. But the reality is light positioning makes for easy markets. And so I think that's a lot of what we're seeing here. Well, it was a messy market over the last few years, that's for sure. Damien, Mike, thank you. Mike mentioned Apple. Let's talk about Apple. The COVID zero policy in China weighing on multinationals. Apple feeling the pain and seeing significantly reduced capacity due to COVID restrictions. This coming amid a Bloomberg report blaming demand woes for at least three million in total production cuts for the iPhone 14. Ed Ludlow has to make sense of this. Morning, Ed. 
Yeah, good morning, John. Apple down for a sixth straight day. Its worst run of declines since January. The stock trading at its lowest level since June. You're right. Two key pieces of news, one on the supply side, one on the demand side. Let's start with the demand side. Apple expects to produce three million fewer iPhone handsets this year. According to sources, it's instructed its suppliers to build 87 million down from 90 million. And according to sources, that is principally due to softness in demand for the lower end base iPhone 14 handset models. You'll remember in September, Apple had actually originally instructed its suppliers to boost output of the iPhone overall, but then walk those back when we got those initial uh, pieces of soft demand. And then at the same time, there's the supply issues too. Apple said Sunday that shipments of the premium iPhone 14 Pro models will be lower than expected due to COVID lockdowns, in particular in the Zhengzhou region where Foxconn, its principal assembler, uh, has a, 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 the bulk of their activity for the Pro models, the higher end versions of the iPhone 14. Apple also warning customers globally that as a consequence of this, there will be an extended waiting period to get your hands on an iPhone 14 Pro model. Why is that important? We're in the final three months of the year, the key holiday season. The street very much worried, not just about volumes, but about the bottom line as well, because the net result of this being fewer handsets is also the mix will change. Fewer shipments of the higher ASP, higher margin Pro models, should impact the bottom line. Um, there's also a really interesting take from UBS on this, John, real quick. They're saying that the market has not yet factored in these disruptions in China for fiscal uh, 1Q or full year 23. And that actually, according to UBS, the market is, quote, way too optimistic in its revenue and earnings projections for Apple for this year, which indicates actually we should take this much more seriously than the street currently is. And how seriously are they taking it? Are they rethinking production in China? Yeah, I mean, we already know the story here, right? Particularly as it relates to Foxconn, the main uh, supplier that assembles the iPhone. They're trying to shift away from a reliance on China to India. But the reality is that 80% of these higher-end iPhone 14 Pro models are assembled in the Zhengzhou region. Um, this is an area that we've reported on, right, where they've been hit hard by quarantines. Workers have fled the region because they can't get into their workplaces. And right now, the government, uh, relating to what Mike was talking about on the policy side, only are allowing medical personnel onto the streets of that city. Uh, it's impossible to run a factory in that scenario. So, yes, long-term, Apple looking at outside of China and towards India principally. Apple down for a sixth day. Ed, thank you. We're down by 1.8%. Ed talked about the analyst community. B of A, Barclays, both cutting targets this morning. Deutsche Bank lowering Q1 estimates. JP Morgan saying Apple. And the latest news implies downside to Q1 estimates as well. Just a range of analysts rethinking maybe the story on the margin. The S&P up by a little more than a tenth of 1% with a sector price action. Back with us, here's Katie. Well, John, the S&P 500, it's just about flat, but you actually have eight of 11 sectors higher right now. Energy is out in front. You do have crude back to flat, and like we talked about, you have U.S. natural gas surging this morning. Consumer discretionary to the downside. That's a lot of the travel names. But the story this week, of course, is the U.S. midterm election. So let's look at what the sector action looks like in the run-up. Over the past week, it's interesting. You have aerospace and oil services, those pipeline companies. 
companies. They've both rallied relative to the S&P 500. Not fantastic games, but for context, you have the S&P 500 down about 2.4% over the past five days. On the other side of the trade, you have green energy, those cannabis companies, both trailing the big benchmark. So it could be a sign that markets see Republicans winning control of Congress. But, John, your guess is probably as good as mine. I don't have a guess right now, Katie. Clueless, as always. Katie, thank you. About 20 minutes into the session, equities down now. On the S&P by a tenth, or the Nasdaq by four tenths of one percent. In the bond market, up six basis points at the front end. Your two-year all over the place last week. Close to 480 post payrolls in the first few minutes. Then the lows of last week, close to 440. Right now, 472. 472. Highs we haven't seen in the last week, going all the way back to maybe 2007. Up next, your trading diary from New York. This is Bloomberg. Five minutes into the session this Monday morning. Good morning to you. We are basically flat on the S&P, negative two-tenths on the Nasdaq 100. Some losses this morning, marginal losses on the Nasdaq, and adding to the losses of last week, down 6% on the Nasdaq 100. Worst week coming all the way back to January. The bond market looks like this, two-tenths and thirties, your two-year. Look at the front end up six basis points again and back through 470, 471, 75 on a two-year, just off the highs of Friday, which were close in and around 480. That's the price action. Let's get you the trading diary. Big week ahead. White House press briefing coming up at 145 Eastern time. Fed speak picking up with Collins, Mester, Barkin all on deck. U.S. midterm elections on Tuesday. The results on Wednesday might take longer than that. Then we get more Fed speak. Williams, Barkin speaking on Wednesday too. And finally, jobless claims followed by another big CPI print in America. CPI Thursday just around the corner. From New York, equities basically unchanged. Thank you for choosing Bloomberg TV. Good luck for the rest of the trading day. This was the countdown to the open. This is Bloomberg. Purchasing a home or refinancing your existing mortgage is likely the biggest purchase you will ever make. Imagine working with a mortgage company that communicates with honesty and integrity, along with efficiency and a quick turnaround. That's Mortgage Standards. Mortgage Standards works with knowledgeable lenders in the industry to get you the best mortgage available to you. We specialize in 100% financing loans in some cases, as well as FHA and conventional. We also love first-time homebuyers, and we cannot forget our veterans. We appreciate your service and offer 100% financing to veterans as well. Call the Mortgage Pros at Mortgage Standards today at 404-384-7719 and elevate your home buying experience. That's 404-384-7719. 404 384-7719 or visit www.mortgagestandardloans.com.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumbo Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumbo Casino was America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Hey everybody, it's Matt here for the Route 3 Productions Podcast. Hope you're having a great day. We're going to talk a little bit about the business of the business of photography and videography here on this episode. We're going to get into a couple of things and uh, one of them is the meta. You know, that, that word and what we do with that meta meta how do we apply that to our businesses it doesn't matter what your business you're in how does it help grow your business how does it help expand your business we're going to talk about it on this episode stay tuned How does all that businessy stuff impact your business? Well, we're going to talk about it here because it's important to know. It doesn't matter what business you're in. It doesn't matter if you're Formula One racing or it doesn't matter if you're a doctor. It doesn't matter if you're a photographer. It doesn't matter if you're a taco truck. It doesn't matter who you are. The photos you use impact your business. And so does the video. And so does the data that you put into that. Okay? Let's talk a little bit about that. I'm going to take just a minute to thank all of you for tuning in and say that if you like this, please like, subscribe, leave us a comment. Do whatever you think you got to do. Even if it's a negative comment, if you got something you think we're just totally crazy on, tell us. You know, I'm, I'm a big boy. I can take it. Uh, you know, we've dealt with haters here all the time. You know, we deal with competitors all the time who, who don't understand what we do. Okay? And part of this podcast is to help you better understand what we do... So that way you're more confident with, A, doing business with us, 
and B, it helps your business grow. Okay? That's all we're trying to do. So thanks for tuning in. Leave, leave us a comment. Talk to us. We want to hear your feedback. So what is one of the most important things you can do <clears throat> with commercial photography and videography? It's pretty simple. Step number one. Get good quality photos that aren't stock. I know that sounds funny. But if you've gotten your stock from another stock place, you know, like Shutterstock or Getty or wherever, doesn't matter, Pexels, wherever you get it, hopefully you're not getting it from Pexels, but wherever you're getting it, chances are your competition can get it too, and that's not cool. Uh, chances are, if you're using it, seeing it used somewhere, Google already realizes that. The algorithm already realizes that that's just a generic stock photo pulled off of some stock site somewhere. Okay? In the grand scheme of things, that devalues the photo, right? Already. A hundredfold. So, very few of our images ever end up on stock sites. In the early days, they did, because that's where we made money. But now, I don't sit there and fool with it. I am not sitting there anymore unless I absolutely have to doing all this work for pennies because first off from an ethical standpoint Shutterstock and iStock and all these other ones I don't care who it is from a photography business standpoint and Shutterstock can sue me if they want I don't care they're unethical okay purely unethical they're out there charging subscription fees and making this money and I get it they're you know say they're investing in the the uh, the infrastructure to get these to market well the producers are literally getting paid cents for these photos they're the ones making all the damn money okay so first off I have an issue an ethical issue with stock photography. Okay. Second off. It's not doing your business a damn bit of good. Okay. If you are out there using stock photography. Chances are everyone else is too. And. The algorithms are so smart these days. That they're picking up on that. What is stock photo because there's this template right all these stock photos look the same um the algorithms are picking that up so they're saying oh well this guy's not putting in the time and effort and all that into his business we're going to penalize him for that 
Now, we don't know that for sure, but that seems what, like the algorithm is doing that. We like to talk a lot about the algorithm here because it is important in feeding that algorithm. So, use original, high-quality, internal stock every single chance you get. That's a big, big, big bonus. Use that internal stock. Okay, I'm going to give you a good, good piece of advice here. And if you think they're not, you're crazy. Okay. The big corporations are out there building their own stock libraries. A, because it's cheaper. And B, because they're realizing that these marketing algorithms are picking up on stock photography, on generic photography. They're realizing that people are getting too good at it. And the algorithm, ostensibly, is devaluing the photos. So, it's not helping you at all. You're paying for something that all it's doing is giving you a very limited benefit. Why would you do that? Okay? So, you come back and you pay a professional to take your own legitimate stock footage. Okay? Whether it's video, whether it's photo, whatever the case may be, you're paying a pro to get that footage for you. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two: once you get that foot, once you get that that content, that photo or that video, whatever it is, from your photographer, from your commercial and business photographer, somebody who specializes in this, once you get that from them, hopefully, if they're a professional. It'll have already been somewhat named, very correctly named. The image, the file name will have been already named. Dr. John Jones sitting on a stool talking with patient at clinic in San Antonio, Texas. Photo by Route 3 Productions. That's the file dot JPEG. That's the proper file name. Okay. Covers all the bases. So you got a good high quality photo or video. You've got a good name that accurately describes what's going on. And it's a keyword. There's keywords in there. Okay that Google will pick up on when you use this on your website. Okay? So, that's point number two. Point number three, make sure that it fits your business. 
Okay, if it doesn't fit your business, it's not going to work. If those photos make no sense, it's just not going to work. If you're using the same headshot for your real estate company, for your Facebook, for your LinkedIn, for your Match.com, whatever... It's not going to work. The algorithms are going to pick up on this. And even a headshot needs to be properly file named. All of the, every image, once you figure out where it's going to go on your website and how it's going to go there and what copy, what text is going to surround it, then you need to support that with good photos or images. Okay, even videos have file names. Even the scripts of videos have keywords in them because the algorithms are reading these videos. They're watching these videos. And they're picking up on those keywords and they're deciding who to show these videos to and suggest them to based off of the words that it picks up. So that's very, very, very important. And those keywords that are in that video and in that title and in that file name, in that caption and around it in the copy need to relatively match the subject matter of your website and what you're doing. It's usually important. So what a producer does, a commercial producer, is going to come through there and they're going to help you fine-tune that script into your voice, right? Sometimes it takes a while, sometimes it doesn't. And we're going to fine-tune that. Because if you're just going, Hello, my name is John Smith. I'm a doctor in San Antonio, Texas. You and everybody else's video is saying that exact same thing with the exception of your name. Let that sink in for a minute. So how is the algorithms going to differentiate you from everybody else? It's not. It's just not. So, make sure that the shoe fits, okay? Next, what you're gonna do, and understand me when I say this, we don't have this down to an exact science, nobody does, because we don't all know how the algorithm works and it changes so frequently. A lot of this is just trial and error. It did, did that with Route 3 Productions when we started building our website. It was just a lot of trial and error. And we still don't rank number one in our local market on Google because we don't, first off, we, we don't market directly to our local market. There's no sense in that. Secondly, um, we're, we're a very broad subject matter. So... Uh, you know, I, I really think that, that what we're doing here is we're targeting 
who these people are, okay, that are watching our videos. We're targeting who our videos are getting in front of. And we're now collecting data from Google and from these different search engines and, you know, all the, from Alphabet, right? We're collecting data and we're stockpiling it for six months, a year, whatever, into a file. This is, these are who your customers are. These are who are watching your video. These are the type of people who are just randomly clicking it. These are what they want to see. So then we figure out who's watching it, who wants to see it, what other people are like them, and what their habits are. So we're collecting all this information from Google, building profiles on your viewers, your customers, and everything else. And we're even getting it right down to where they're scrolling, where their cursor is on the page, where their, their mouse is going on the page. We can get it that specific. So we can see what they're following along with, what they're not following along with. We can, you'd be surprised all the things that you can see through this data. So it's very important to get it in front of them and keep them engaged. Now let's say you're in the incubation stage. You're in the new idea, concept. You're in the incubation stage. You're, but you're at the point right where you're going to do it. Okay? This is... You're past the point where is this thing going to solidify and take hold or is it going to fish and cut bait? Okay? You're past that point. You're on the hook. You're going to do it. Start building your content and build a lot of it. So that way, each and every week, every third day, whatever, twice a week, whatever, you're not struggling to keep up with content. Okay? You're not struggling to keep up with your content. You're staying ahead of the content game. That's very important. So that way you don't fall behind. That's where a commercial photographer or a commercial production company comes into play. We help you stay on top of that content. We send you reminders. We're constantly coming up with ideas, we're running them by you, we're helping you fine-tune scripts, we're helping you record, we're doing all the editing for you. Surprisingly, it costs a lot less than what you'd think. But when corporations, when big companies and medical syndicates and doctor's offices and people like that come to us with these problems, that's what we're doing. It's way more, it starts with good, high-quality photography and videography. But it doesn't just end there. It continues to grow, it continues to blossom, it continues to thrive as your business grows. 
Are you going to rank one on Google? Probably not. Are you going to be on that first page? It helps. If you're doing everything you need to do, like blogging, if you're blogging regular, really regular, and you're posting relevant blogs, absolutely. If you're vlogging and those keywords are right up there, absolutely. Are you podcasting? Absolutely. These are things that really help your business grow. So from a business standpoint, it only makes sense. It only makes sense to do it and to do it right. So, to summarize this, you start off with your own original, good, high-quality content. Name it properly, place it properly, and put it out there properly. Produce it right. Build up a library. Put it out there on a timely regular basis and collect the data once you collect the data you analyze the data once you analyze the data you begin building profiles of people once you build the profiles of people then you know who your customers are you know who your potential customers are You know what people are clicking on, you know what they're following on, you know what keywords they're looking for, you know all of this right down to the neighborhood that they're in. And you know what they're getting at the grocery store, you know what they're buying at CVS. You know. And you can target them a lot better. Pretty scary if you think about it, what marketers know. But you have to know so you can get in front of your customers. Do you like what you've heard today? Have you learned something here? I hope you have. If you have, comment, like, subscribe, and tune into the next episode. That's all you got to do. Because we're going to give you useful information here. In short, digestible, hopefully easy to understand little podcasts and videos you need to start doing this if you start doing this it will help you out tremendously and the earlier on you get into this the better off you're going to be hey i'm matt everybody thanks for joining me here on the route through production podcast if you need help doing any of this feel free to give us a call 361-696-5762 361-696-5762 or visit, visit us on our website www.route3productions.com all spelled out I'll talk to you later everybody thanks a lot for joining me have a good rest of your week take care see ya
Purchasing a home or refinancing your existing mortgage is likely the biggest purchase you will ever make. Imagine working with a mortgage company that communicates with honesty and integrity, along with efficiency and a quick turnaround. That's Mortgage Standards. Mortgage Standards works with knowledgeable lenders in the industry to get you the best mortgage available to you. We specialize in 100% financing loans in some cases, as well as FHA and conventional. We also love first-time home buyers, and we cannot forget our veterans. We appreciate your service and offer 100% financing to veterans as well. Call the Mortgage Pros at Mortgage Standards today at 404-384-7719 and elevate your home buying experience. That's 404-384-7719, 404-384-7719, or visit www.mortgagestandardloans.com. Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches. Urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back, and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com. Amazon Business Honors Ricardo Gurgel, owner of Veggie Root Tavern. This week, Ricardo saved big and used Amazon Business to help his team buy commercial deep fryers at a quantity discount. Because even veggies can be fried. I'm going to need two orders of fried fiddleheads. With business buying easier than before, Ricardo now uses his extra time to focus on growing something big. Buy smarter, dream bigger. Visit Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Mmm, fiddleheads. Yum. Amazon Business honors Jill Lau, Chief Procurement Officer of Global Network Bank. Last week, Jill saved big and used Amazon Business to help her team buy 327 headsets. Now Bob can keep his conversations to himself. Speakerphone? With business buying easier than before, Jill now uses her extra time to focus on growing something big. 
Buy smarter, dream bigger. Visit Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Thank you for holding. Hang it up, Bob. This is the FCB Podcast Network. Everybody, um, I would like to welcome you to the Power of Our Dollar podcast. Um, this is a new podcast hosted on FCBRadio.com, and we are looking to highlight Black businesses in the Northeast Ohio region. Um, today, we have our first interview. And we have the Deontay, excuse me, Deontay Morrow of the Morrow Group and Company. Uh, the Morrow Group and Company is a brokerage, an insurance brokerage agency. Um, and I just like to welcome you, Deontay. How are you today? I'm doing awesome. Thank you for having me. I feel blessed, and it's a pleasure to be your first episode. Great. We're so glad to have you here. Um, tell us about the Morrow Group. Um, what exactly, as an insurance brokerage, what do you do and what are the products that you offer? Okay, I'll start off by saying we are based in Cleveland, Ohio, right in the Collinwood area, uh, but we service clients for auto home, any type of business insurance, life insurance as well, nationwide. Uh, our primary states are Georgia, Texas, Florida, and of course, Ohio. And we have some other states that we service uh, clients for as well, but those are our main focus states. Okay, so um, you service Ohio and other states. Um, tell us, you know, why you got into the business. What made you, um, you know, what what is your passion in terms of the work that you do? Uh, I've been I've been in the industry for about five. Going on six years now, it's funny, every time I get asked that question by someone that's not in the industry versus someone that's in the industry, most insurance brokers, agents, they randomly just fall into the position. Uh, and that's, that's kind of my story. My background is athletics. I was a hometown Cleveland football player. I went to St. Edward High School where I played football. I played a couple of sports, but my main focus sport was football. I then was blessed with the opportunity to have scholarships to play football on the bigger stage. I played in the Big Ten and I finished up in 
got my degree at the University of Toledo, which is where I finished my last two years as a starter. I then went, I was an NFL free agent uh, for a little bit, but as you know, if you're an athlete, if you're a free agent, you don't get paid. Uh, so I, then I went to the coaching aspect of it. I was Division One coach for three years, for three seasons. From there, I transitioned from the coaching realm and moved back to Cleveland to be a little bit closer to my son because I was coaching in Charlotte, North Carolina. And randomly, you know, on the search uh, for a new career, ended up in the insurance industry. Uh, ended up at a call center at a Fortune 500 company. Was not a fan of the call center, but I learned a lot. And I still wanted to get involved and be involved in the athletic realm of it. So as I began to plan uh, my future endeavors, uh, my business, I started business plans and so on and so forth. And it involved the insurance because I was in the insurance industry because I was very intrigued and interested by what I had learned. So from there, launched the Morrow Group and Company. And my passion is just to assist people. Um, I enjoy educating individuals on the insurance industry and how it works. Because when you come from the inner city of Cleveland, amongst nationwide inner cities, where there's a lot of poverty, a lot of and a lot of uneducated individuals, when it comes to the insurance industry, um, somebody has to be the go-to. Uh, I enjoy being that go-to person uh, to one, educate them, and then make sure they are provided the, the correct coverage, whether it's an SR-22 for somebody that has a bad driving record, uh, a business policy, whether for a, for a bar or a, a barber shop or a home health care agency, uh, whether it's life insurance for a top for a new mom or for you know a daughter looking to purchase life insurance or final expense insurance on a grandparent or or a parent for that nature of. I found that a lot of times in the inner city, we don't, we don't have, we feel like we don't have access to that information uh, and we don't know who to contact. And I take pride in, in being that individual to where individuals feel like they can contact me, trust me be a, to be their trustworthy broker to make sure that whatever type of insurance they need, I'm the go-to guy, and the moral group and company can get it done for them. Okay, wonderful. So when you say that you enjoy um, educating people, what is the number one message that you would give to people about the importance of insurance um, and why having access to it is, is valuable? Well, number one thing I would say is, Get it now because it's always needed. When it comes to auto insurance, you have to have auto insurance if you have a car. 
because it's illegal to drive without insurance. Mm. When it comes to life insurance, you're guaranteed once you're guaranteed once you once you're born, you're guaranteed one thing in life, and that's that you're gonna pass away at some point in time. So if you're a parent who's got a child, um, you should have a policy on yourself to make sure that you leave your your child with something. If you're a parent with a child, you should also have a life insurance policy on your child to make sure that they have something they can pass down. For generations, uh, people have been using life insurance policies as to start or fund generational wealth, which is, which is something that is missing in our community. And I enjoy being that individual to want to educate my clients on why it's important and how it's important and making sure that they're insured and properly. So I have a kind of a personal question to that. Yes, yes. Specifically about life insurance. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm one that I feel like I'm relatively um, educated or I try to be. Yeah. Um, and life insurance has been one thing that's been relatively complicated for me. I, I will tell you in the different types of policies. Um, but, um, even more recently I was watching like a Susie Orman or something like that. And, um, having, she was having a conversation about having life insurance and, um, one of her uh, tips, I guess, was that um, instead of investing in a life insurance policy um, for someone like myself, who at this point, um, I'm, it's just me. Um, my, my daughter has grown. She's no longer dependent on me, um, even though, again, there's, there's some... Um, some desire to leave something behind. Yes. But her recommendation was to invest kind of that monthly policy money into um, another uh, investment vehicle, like a 401k or something that was more liquid. Um, what would you say to that, to someone who for example, has, has finished um, raising their children and they are, are independent folks and just kind of... I'll start off by saying, does your daughter have a child? No, she doesn't. Okay. Uh, hopefully she plans to continue the... the uh, to continue to grow your family heritage, correct? Um, Possibly. <laughs> I got you. Right um, now, resting. Yeah, when, whenever it happens. Okay? Uh -huh. I'll, I'll give you a situation. You purchase a hundred thousand dollar policy. You 
make one payment, you make the initial payment, we're not going to say you, but let's just say uh, John Doe purchases a $100,000 policy in June, makes that initial payment. He's been approved by whatever insurance company. John then passes away from natural death. Um, 45 to 60 days after. Okay, but he's only made three payments. Let's say those payments have been 50 bucks. It's $150, correct? Uh-huh. He passes away. Your daughter is listed as a beneficiary or John's daughter is listed as a beneficiary. John's daughter now inherits Minus of, co- minus, of course, those funeral expenses, so on and so forth, inherits, inherits whatever that balance is. So let's say the average funeral uh, expenses are $20,000. You've paid 100, John has paid $150,000 or $150 for $100,000 worth of coverage. The funeral expenses were $20,000. He now leaves his daughter with $80,000. If you invest that same money into whatever other vehicle you choose to invest it in, are you guaranteed that type of, I'm not even going to say profit, are you guaranteed that type of, because it's not a profit because somebody's losing their life, correct? Uh, Right. Of course, we would always rather the individual, especially if it's somebody that's important and impactful in your life, right, over the money. But you give me a vehicle, I would, you give me a vehicle that can give you that type of return. You asking me? Yeah, I'm just, that's, that, that would be my argument. Okay. Some, somebody say that, hey, I spent $150 and I now have the total policy was a hundred thousand. But with funeral expenses, let's just say, okay, I now have netted eighty thousand dollars. And again, this is not about the money at all, because we would always rather have that individual in our lives than just the money, because it's not always about the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's very few vehicles that can, in, investment vehicles that can do that for you. It's very few. Right? In the inner city, that, that's a, that we they say that's a hell of a flip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? 150 to 80,000 now. Okay. A, a lot of times, um, if you're not from the inner city, you most people don't understand that those other investment vehicles that we're talking about mm-hmm. are a little far-fetched. And when I say far-fetched, is if we we don't have we don't have the financial knowledge to make that happen. Okay. Right? Let alone the the funds. 
I hear that all the time. Hey, why would you purchase a life insurance policy when you can invest it into into the stock market? Again, there's no, there's not that chance of that investing at one fifty and making eighty thousand in that time frame. The, the the ratios are a little different, right? And depending on the life and type of life insurance policy you have, your life insurance policy begins to incur cash value. If you have a whole life policy or a permanent policy, is what we would call it, a whole life policy. If you, as long as you pay, make your payments on time, that life insurance policy begins to acquire what we call cash value. So you get once it continue once you make those payments. Now it's usually a three to five year span where you have to make those payments to acquire that cash value. But once it's in there, it's in there. That cash value is your money. So let's say you make a purchase. Let's say again, I'll give the hundred thousand dollar policy. You make payments for three years. That third year. Let's say the cash value is a thousand dollars. That next year, the cash value is fifteen hundred. The next year, but so on and so on, it increases by five to a thousand, five hundred to a thousand dollars each year. You now have cash value. So. If you're in, you can use a life insurance policy for emergency funds. Most people don't know that. You can borrow from your life insurance policy. You can use it for college tuition. You can use it to purchase your first home. You can use it for medical expenses. These are things that we don't know. Mm-hmm. With that we can use our life insurance policies for. Now I'm not saying there's there's nothing wrong with diversifying your portfolio, but a life insurance policy is something that I'm going to say that all people should have. Okay. Especially if you're from where we are from. When I say we, I mean people that are born and ra- born and raised in the inner city. Mhm. Mhm. Well, that's a wonderful explanation. Thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, if there was someone that um, is interested in being an entrepreneur, or or even specifically getting into the insurance business, what are what would be your most cautionary tale? What would you tell them? Uh, my first cautionary tale would be well, my advice in general, have a plan. As you heard me tell my story, my the first thing I did once I realized I wanted to stay in the insurance industry, but I wanted to venture off and do my own thing. I started a business plan immediately. 
Now, it, it, to each his own on how, who, what, when, where, how you do your business plan, but there needs to be some type of plan in play, right? Financially, how are we going to make this happen? What do we see? Set a three-month goal. Set a six-month goal. You can set a one-year goal, three-year goal, five-year goal, ten-year goal. There has to be a plan in place. That's one. You have to be self-motivated. Have to be willing to do the work, because at the end of the day, you get out what you put in, mm -hmm. and you cannot. Number three is, you cannot be afraid to fail. Mm, that's good. You cannot be afraid to fail. So if I had to provide three gems for anybody, right? One, put a plan in place. Because if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if anybody who's successful, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're working at a Fortune 500, the number Fortune 500 company, number one thing that anybody will tell you uh, is that you have to be organized. So if you have a business plan in place and you're sticking to that strategy, you're probably organized. Number two is you got to be self-motivated. You're going to have to work longer and harder, understanding that eventually it'll pay off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Three, you can't be afraid to fail. Right? If you're afraid to fail, you'll never be able to reach your goals. Failure isn't failure when it comes to business. Failure is... You should take you should take it as a learning lesson, a tool. Okay, right. did this the wrong way this time. Now I know I need to go to path B and not path A, and it'll probably give me a different result. Now I need to okay, this was I did this right, but I did this wrong. I need to restructure my business plan to make sure A plus B equals C. Right. Your business plan is a fluid document. So it's something that can always be adjusted, right? Always. Absolutely. So that's wonderful. Um, so I guess my one last question is just to leave us with some motivation. Um, in this, in this, I, I feel like in this atmosphere, in this environment, we're no matter where we're at, whether we're entrepreneurs or just going to work every day, um, we have some struggles. So what would you leave us with as, as we face our these daily struggles and looking at these economic times? Um, first and foremost, you know, make sure your spiritual presence is there. So whatever religion you are, whoever you believe in, make sure your faith is strong. That's one. Two, uh, just enjoy life. Enjoy that is at its purest form. 
Enjoy your family, enjoy your friends, enjoy your loved ones, enjoy your craft. And by craft, if, if that is, if you're an entrepreneur, enjoy it. If you're, uh, you're a nine to five worker, enjoy it. Because something, you know, it can be taken away from you. So enjoy it at its purest form, embrace it, and uh, be yourself. Be confident in who you are. Stand on your ten toes. Have your morals and character. Whoever you are, be that person and be confident in that person. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Deontay. Um, if anybody is interested in reaching out to you or would like to... Um, purchase any of your services, how can they reach you? I can be reached on social media at The Real Insurance Coach. Once again, that is The Real Insurance Coach on Instagram. Um, our agency Instagram is The Morrow Group and co the moral group co on instagram that's a business page we have a website where you can request a quote www.morrowgroupco.com once again it's www.morrowgroupco.com and you can also find us on google we are one of the top rated homeowners insurance producers on google uh, if you click in the name, we'll be up there. We are, uh, I believe, a 4.5 to 5-star rating on Google and the Better Business Bureau. We also are MBE certified, along with Better Business Bureau as well. All right. Thank you, Deontay. I appreciate your time. You guys make sure to check him out, um, like he said, on uh, the Moral Group and Call on Instagram. Google him. Um, looking at his website, there are many, many insurance vehicles that he has for your personal life, your business. Um, Y'all, most of us cannot function validly in a business without insurance. There's many places and spaces you have to ha be able to prove you have insurance in your business. So um, he is the agent to go to if you're looking for those products, um, business, nonprofit insurance, anything like that, uh, give him a call. Um, again, this is the power of your dollar podcast. My name is Ashley Evans. I am your host. If you'd like to hear more from me, uh, please feel free to check out Views with Ashley Evans on any of your podcast stations. Over there, we're talking about politics and culture. So check us out there as well. And you can always follow me on Instagram at Ashley's Views, A-S-H-L-E-Y-E-S-B-I-E-W-S. -E -E um, and we look forward to more. Thank you again, Deontay. Thank you for having me. All right, you guys have a great day.
This has been a presentation of the FCB Podcast Network, where real talk lives. Visit us online at fcbpodcasts.com. Purchasing a home or refinancing your existing mortgage is likely the biggest purchase you will ever make. Imagine working with a mortgage company that communicates with honesty and integrity, along with efficiency and a quick turnaround. That's Mortgage Standards. Mortgage Standards works with knowledgeable lenders in the industry to get you the best mortgage available to you. We specialize in 100% financing loans in some cases, as well as FHA and conventional. We also love first-time homebuyers, and we cannot forget our veterans. We appreciate your service and offer 100% financing to veterans as well. Call the Mortgage Pros at Mortgage Standards today at 404-384-7719 and elevate your home buying experience. That's 404-384-7719, 404-384-7719, or visit www.mortgagestandardloans.com. Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches, urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back, and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com. Audio Jungle. Purchasing a home or refinancing your existing mortgage is likely the biggest purchase you will ever make. Imagine working with a mortgage company that communicates with honesty and integrity, along with efficiency and a quick turnaround. That's Mortgage Standards. Mortgage Standards works with knowledgeable lenders in the industry to get you the best mortgage available to you. We specialize in 100% financing loans in some cases, as well as FHA and conventional. We also love first-time homebuyers, and we cannot forget our veterans. We appreciate your service and offer 100% financing to veterans as well. Call the Mortgage Pros at Mortgage Standards today at 404-384-7719 and elevate your home buying experience. That's 404-384-7719, 404 404- 384-7719 or visit www.mortgagestandardloans.com 
Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches. Urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back, and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the FFA Off. I'm your host, Anthony Servino. Follow me on Twitter at the Real NFL Guru. Follow the show at the FFA Off. We'll be found at all the top social media and podcast platforms. We're going to discuss my top waiver wire ads, fantasy football week 10, the fantasy football playoffs rapidly approaching. Now is the time to build that depth for a playoff and a championship push remember if you like anything in this video hit the like button hit the subscribe button the notification icon so you could be notified anytime we drop content like this or do live streams where we answer your questions the whole time and if you have any questions on this video drop them in the comment section i'll get back to you as soon as i can now let's get into my week 10 Fantasy football quarterbacks to add from the waiver wire. And we're going to start with Daniel Jones. And I've been beating the drum for Daniel Jones a lot on these shows. He had his bye week last week. So coming off the bye, you should be able to get Daniel Jones. Only rostered 40% of leagues at Yahoo. Now, the last time we saw Daniel Jones, it was not pretty Despite the good matchup, only 10.8 fantasy points. Um, he gets Houston this week. And Houston's not exactly a great matchup either. But we saw what Jalen Hurts did to the Houston Texans. Now, Daniel Jones isn't Jalen Hurts. He doesn't have the weapons that Jalen Hurts has. However, you can make the case that well, we know that Daniel Jones can get it done on the ground with his legs. He has three games with over 68 yards rushing this season, including one over 100 back in Week 7. So we know Daniel Jones can get it done with the legs, which raises his floor in fantasy, he could throw the ball a little bit. They have Wandale Robinson. They have Darius Slayton. They might be even getting that guy named Kenny, Kenny Galladay back uh, from injury. But who the hell knows coming off the bye. But you still pick up Daniel Jones if you're in a spot. Here's 
something you have to pay attention to if you're listening to this and you're a Josh Allen fantasy manager. There's reports going around that he is still being evaluated for a potential elbow injury suffered against the Jets on Sunday. We don't know how severe this is, but this could be a catastrophic blow to your season. Like, I have Josh Allen in a lot of leagues. I'm winning in a lot of leagues because of Josh Allen. Like, he carries your team, as we both know. So you better have a backup plan in place, especially in one quarterback leagues. A lot of us aren't carrying backups now would be the time to stash one just in case Daniel Jones should be at the top of your list. Next up, talk about a stash, Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson will be back in about four weeks. It is week 10. He'll be back in week 13 in a revenge game against his former team, the Houston Texans. I don't care how good they are against enemy quarterbacks. Deshaun Watson's going to light him up uh, upon his return. Why do we pick up Deshaun Watson now? Well, already the guy who hasn't played all year is already rostered in 27% of leagues at Yahoo. Deshaun Watson is a league-winning quarterback. You pick him up now because the closer it gets, the more it's going to cost you in fab. You pick him up now because the closer it gets, other people are going to want Deshaun Watson too, and here's why. Yeah, it's not pretty. You get you get Houston out of the gate. Again, he should be able to exploit pretty good Houston defense. You get Cincy, they're Houston's, they're, their defense is really good, but their secondary is all sorts of banged up. Plus, if this game gets into a shootout, we know Deshaun Watson can keep up with Joe Burrow. And then the floodgates open week 15, 16, 17, the fantasy playoffs, Baltimore, 25th against quarterbacks, New Orleans 15th but exploitable, and then Washington 19th and really exploitable. Absolutely, positively get ready to pick up Deshaun Watson especially if you're a contender and need some help at the quarterback position. And even if you don't need help, you pick up Watson to block other teams from picking him up. It's called strategy. Look into it because Deshaun Watson is that guy. He's either going to help you or hurt you. Let's go to my fantasy football running back ads for week 10. Let's start with Isaiah Pacheco. And Isaiah Pacheco, listen, this running game is so hit or miss with the Chiefs. I, I guess CEH had, a, had an awesome couple of games early. He was really efficient with the touchdowns. This Chiefs backfield is in trouble. They're, they're severely one-dimensional, kind of like Buffalo only it seems like Mahomes is a little bit better at navigating through the one-dimensional BS than Josh Allen is at times. And Isaiah Pacheco, he is the quote-unquote starter, but despite being named the starter in the past two games, 18 offensive snaps against Frisco, 
Uh, he had the bye week, then only 20 offensive snaps against the Tennessee Titans. Um, the production isn't there. The usage isn't there. But the matchups get a little bit softer. Remember, San Francisco second against PPR backs. Tennessee third against PPR backs. In week 10, who do you get? Come on down, Jacksonville Jaguars. Then the Chargers, the second easiest matchup, gets a little bit tougher against the Rams. They're 11th. They were a top five unit earlier. You can now exploit them a little bit. Then Cincy, then Denver, then Houston, 32nd, then Seattle, 25th, and Denver again. The schedule gets easier for running backs on the Kansas City Chiefs. Go pick up Isaiah Pacheco. Go stash him just in case he gets hot and gets going for the fantasy playoffs. Rashad White's next. If Rashad White is being rostered 34% of leagues in Yahoo, and of course he is Leather Fournette's handcuff. But Rashad White, is starting to see an uptick in usage starting in week four, 23 snaps, week five, 30. Then it takes a dip, 15 against Pittsburgh. We know that was a disaster. Week 70 at 29 against Carolina, and then 15 against Baltimore, and uh, another 29, the second most of the year against the Rams. So we're starting to see more Rashad White, despite the fact Leonard Fournette is still garnering the touches, and he will, because he is a superior pass blocker, and Tom Brady trusts him. But look at Rashad White's usage slowly trickling up. Um, in the past three games, he has seen carries of 6, 4, and 8. Uh, in the past... Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six games. The past six games since week four, Rashad White has had at least uh, had has had three games with at least four targets and five games with at least three. In that same time period, he's had at least three receptions in five of six games with the ceiling of five receptions back in week four. We are starting to see a PPR floor develop for Rashad White. We are starting to see the schedule open up a little bit, just like for Kansas City backs. You get Seattle in week 10, you got the bye. Week 12, you get Cleveland. Uh, top five matchup for PPR running backs. Then it gets tougher, New Orleans and Frisco. And then the fantasy playoff matchups, Cincy, a little bit of a tough one. Then Arizona, 22nd. Then Carolina, Week 17, Fantasy Championship. Should be a smash spot. And listen, if the Bucks start turning it around, like we saw them pull that game out against the Rams, they that could spark this team. They're going to want to preserve Leonard Fournette for the playoffs. And if they're winning games, we can start seeing more Rashad White in four-minute drill, especially in games that Tampa is blowing out their opponent, because I do believe that is a possibility, especially in some of these must-win matchups that Tampa was losing earlier. Divorcee Tom Brady is 1-0, which could really catapult this team for the rest of the season, as crazy as that sounds. Let's go to my next and final running back pickup, Rashad, uh, 
Chuba Hubbard. Chuba Hubbard has missed the past two games with a ankle injury. And while he's been out, Dante Foreman has looked phenomenal. However, we might have seen Dante Foreman kind of come back down to earth a little bit uh, after popping for a couple of games. Dante Foreman, only 4.1 PPR points against Cincinnati. That game was out of hand anyway. But what do we know about Chuba Hubbard? Chuba Hubbard in the past has been productive when CMC was out. Last season alone, Chuba Hubbard accounted for four games with at least 12 PPR points, including a game with 14, 15, and 19. Chuba Hubbard is going to have a role with Donta Foreman. And Chuba Hubbard should be added in on your fantasy football rosters. Because what if Dante Foreman gets banged up? Then you have a clear-cut RB1. Now, not like a top 12 running back of fantasy. RB1, I'm saying a team RB1. Plus, like it's the Carolina Panthers. They're going to use both of these backs. They don't have a ton of weapons anyway. They're going to catch passes. They're going to get in between the tackle rushers. So go roster these guys. Um, Again, Chuba Hubbard available in 34% of leagues. Like I'm seeing Donta Foreman get traded right now like he's a top 10 fantasy running back. Like pump the brakes. He's good. He's not that good. He's not good enough to keep Chuba Hubbard off the field. Go pick up Chuba Hubbard right now. Let's go to my fantasy football wide receiver ads for week 10. Let's kick it off with Terrace Marshall, another Panther. And Terrace Marshall is finally getting going a little bit after a horrendous start to his career. Probably not his fault. Again, the Panthers suck. But in the past two games, we've seen Terrace Marshall give us 12.7 and 14.3. He's had at least six targets in both of those games, topping out at nine. He's had a 353 and one line last week against Cincy, the week before that against Atlanta, four for 87. Really nice production on the other side of DJ Moore. I feel like Terrace Marshall is really solidifying himself as a number two wideout on this roster ahead of guys like Shai Smith, LaVisca Chenault. And now you get the Falcons and you get Baltimore in your next two games. And then if you need him in the fantasy playoffs, Pittsburgh 32nd, Detroit 28th, Tampa 16th. Are you kidding me? I love this schedule for a team that's going to throw a ton because they seem to always be trailing. Go pick up Terrace Marshall. He's available in like over 90% of leagues right now. Next up, Darius Slayton. New York Giants wide receiver Darius Slayton only rostered in 5% of leagues because all the hype is surrounding Wandale Robinson. But pump the brakes here. Darius Slayton 
in three out of his past four games, has had at least six targets. Darius Slayton, when he sees six targets, he gets at least 11.6 PPR points. Darius Slayton is either giving you a 5 for 66 floor or a 358 and one floor, uh, you know, when he scores a touchdown. I get Wandell Robinson's rookie, and he's exciting, and, and, P, and that's what people love on fantasy Twitter. They love the rookies. But Darius Slayton, the trusted veteran who has a rapport with Daniel Jones, is going to have a role on this offense. And it gets, again, you get Houston, not the easiest matchup, but coming out, Detroit, Dallas, Washington, Philly, Washington, Minnesota, Indy. Love this schedule for Giants wide receivers. Let everybody else have Wandale Robinson. If Darius Slayton can stay on the field and stay healthy, I love his rest of season value because, again, three out of his past four games, at least six targets, and that could have could possibly go up let's go to my next wide receiver and if we're stashing deshaun watson it's time to stash donovan peoples jones and peoples jones rostering 35 percent of leagues donovan peoples jones has played in every game this year and in all but three games has returned double digit ppr points He's even had double-digit PPR points in four out of his past five games, including three straight. Now, he doesn't have a very high ceiling, but he's bringing a very high 11.6 PPR point floor. He is getting at least four targets um, in each of the past five games, not a lot. But we're but four is the low start. Uh, four, excuse me, is the low side. Here's his target share since week four: nine, seven, five, six, four. Coming out of the bye, you get Miami, you get Buffalo. Like the, the schedule between now and the fantasy playoff week fifteen is not great. But again, he is bringing a high four regardless. But when Deshaun Watson comes back. All of a sudden, DPJ's floor is going to be higher because he has competent quarterback and a quarterback that can hit the deep ball, which is what DPJ does really well. And then again, the fantasy playoffs, like I was telling you, Baltimore 29, New Orleans 26, Washington 25, these could be league-winning matchups. For Donovan Peoples-Jones, if you want him, go stash him now. Because like I said about Deshaun, it's going to get more expensive if you wait. Let's go to my top week 10 fantasy football tight ends to roster here as we wind down the program. We're going to start with Cole Komet. Cole Komet used to be cold Komet. Now he's turning into hot Komet. Cole Komet, the past two games, he has scored a touchdown. This dude doesn't score touchdowns. He has now scored three in his past two games. 
22 PPR points. I don't even have to go back and look. I'm going to assume that's really close to a career high. Uh, he saw six targets last week, a season high. Now, is this going to be maintained? Like Cole Komet getting six targets and getting red zone targets? I don't know. But the schedule is favorable for Cole Komet in an offense where, guess what? You have to contend with Mooney deep. You have to contain Claypool underneath because they have more competency at wide receiver. All of a sudden, you, you don't have to shadow or you can't shadow Cole Komet. Maybe Cole Komet actually gets open now because he's not the number two option. And Cole Komet gets the Lions 29th. You get the Atlanta Falcons 27th. You get the Jets 16th. Guess what? And his schedule a little bit tougher. But Week 17 Fantasy Playoffs, you get the Lions 29th again if you need a tight end. Cole Komet is certainly worth a shot. (laughs) 